Oh, I wanted to ask you um, if you would mind me uh -huh. doing a solo bonus show show because I finished a solo bolo. I, because I finished Mad Men. Oh yeah, and I really want to just talk about it into the ether. Yeah. But you haven't cool. finished, and I encourage you to finish it someday. In fact, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and experience Mad Men. A companion piece to Mad Men yes. in general. So I thought that I would just like by myself, yeah. just like ramble about For Mad sure. Men, get all my thoughts out, put that out this weekend. Yeah, do it up. Okay, cool. I like that. I guess the best way to approach this is to just make it like an improvisational uh, recap of the entire series as I remember it and as I understand it interpretively. Uh now, I'll say ahead of time, Mad Men, of course, is like one of those original prestige dramas, uh, just post-Sopranos, sort of coexisting with like Breaking Bad and the early seeds of Game of Thrones becoming like a very big deal. But like it's ahead of the time when every drama on some kind of streaming service or premium cable um, is like really, really excellent. And so it feels pioneer-esque in terms of television. Um, but just because it wasn't quite as ubiquitous or accessible, I didn't get around to watching it in real time. And then just being a person who consumes popular culture as much as I do, I did become aware of, oh, a couple things, which I think I thought precluded me from being able to enjoy it in its purest sense as a fan. And that's why I never got around to it latently either. Knowing that I like John Hamm, knowing that I like 60s period pieces and that it's probably very stylish and, and maybe very funny, I was like, well, look, I know that Don Draper is actually a fraud and he's stolen someone else's identity. And that's like a very important thing about the show. And so probably knowing that going in is going to take away some of the uh, exciting thrill of it. That didn't turn out to be the case. You find that out so early on um, and it, I mean, it informs the character. It's always present within the show, but it, it's not like even the most important thing about the show. And then I also knew something very important about the series finale. Or rather, I knew something about the series finale that I figured probably had the potential to be very important, but I had no idea exactly how significant it was plot-wise, except for that I had a hunch that it was probably like the final frames of the show. And by the way, having seen now the final frames of the show, I was right. And it is pretty important, but you do have to see the rest of the series to know how to interpret it or to be even eligible for interpretation of the series finale. And so I'm going to talk as much as I can about Mad Men just on a surface level, just having finished watching the series a couple of days ago. Um, and I'll sort of insert some of my instincts and feelings, having not read anything, not really done any research, and certainly not been a part of any significant Mad Men conversations with people beyond Becky. Um, and maybe that will help me uh, work through some of what I've taken away from this show, which overall I liked so, so much. So we begin in uh, 1960 New York City, this mysterious creative genius Don Draper is like an important advertising executive at Sterling Cooper. Uh, and he kind of has the world eating from the palm of his hand. He's got like a casual girlfriend in the city. He's got the respect of Madison Avenue uh, writ large. And he also has like a perfect nuclear family in the suburbs. And that's kind of the twist of the pilot episode that he has a family at all, that he has like the traditional... Um, nuclear home lifestyle uh, 
and then we, of course, meet those people later on. Contrast to Don is Peggy Olson, who's like plucky but kind of timid. She's 20-something. Uh, she gets a job at the firm, and she's assigned to Don's desk. And very quickly, she tries to adapt to the hedonistic culture of Madison Avenue, and she makes a pass at Don on her first day, and he shuts that down very quickly. And, and instead, she ends up having this steamy uh, affair, I guess, or an office encounter at first, with Pete Campbell, who's a junior accounts representative. Um, he then immediately flits off on his honeymoon with Trudy, leaving Peggy to wonder what that all means. At first, she's kind of like got a schoolgirl crush on him. And very quickly, by the way, you know that this is not the best Peggy can do because Pete becomes one of the central antagonists to Dawn's success throughout Mad Men. He doesn't antagonize Peggy for reasons we'll explain coming up, but he also is not at least initially, very respectful towards her. Uh, so Dawn's married to to Betty back in the Burbs. She's like a repressed housewife who's feeling unfulfilled by the neighborhood gossip, but that's kind of her whole life and her two children. Uh, and she begins seeing a psychiatrist, which is pretty um, forward-thinking, I think, for 1960. Like, there's probably a lot of taboo on the mental health discussion 60 years ago. But by the way, this psychiatrist... Uh, doesn't have a lot of integrity either because he's in turn reporting all of Betty's personal information back to Don. Like after she goes to bed, Don has a phone call with the shrink, which seems so evil at the time. Uh, Pete Campbell and Don, they start to butt heads at the office. Don is his superior, but Pete doesn't like that. Pete undermines Don by pitching this account, which Don doesn't like. But there's actually little he can do about it because Pete has discovered a way to lord some power over Don. He's rifled through Don's mail and learns this shocking secret, which is that Don Draper is not Don Draper. He's Dick Whitman, son of a drunk and a prostitute, grew up kind of in, like, the South, I guess, uh, had nothing, and went off to join the army. And in Korea, Dick Whitman accidentally drops a lighter where there's some fuel spilled, causes this explosion, which kills his commanding officer, and that CO's name was Don Draper. And when the hospital mixes the two people up, obviously the CO died, the dog tags get switched somehow, and Dick just kind of goes with it and assumes this new identity, leaving behind his old life, his broken family, uh, and Pete discovers this by going through his mail, uh, and he opens this package, which is from Dick's long-lost brother. So he tries to blackmail Don, tries to get him fired. Uh, Burt Cooper, who's the president of the company, actually doesn't care. So Don's thinking, like, this is probably curtains for him. Turns out... Cooper doesn't care, and he agrees to keep the secret, and this leaves Pete feeling quite small and dejected. Uh, so then Sterling Cooper forms a partnership with Mencken's department store, um, and, and Don starts an affair with their heiress, Rachel Mencken, because Don is a scoundrel, by the way. He's like one of those lovable scoundrels who's like problematic in every way you can conceive, and yet because of his incredible charisma, you're just... You're rooting for him every step of the way. Here he is now with a second side relationship in addition to his wife, who later we come to not be the greatest of uh, of supporters, but I don't know. You don't you don't want to see this happen to her. Anyway, uh, Rachel Mencken is kind of the opposite of, of Betty Cooper. By the way, I, I found out later that because uh, John Hamm has like a history with UCB, he was friends with Sarah Silverman. And in the making of the first season of Don Draper, he tried to get Sarah Silverman hired to play Rachel Mankin. Um, she just wasn't available for it because she was doing the Sarah Silverman program. Uh, so this is around when Peggy first shines in 
a significant way. So there's a concept meeting about how they're going to market lipstick. And Peggy just kind of interjects, which I guess is crossing a line, but she comes up with some great ideas for, for the lipstick campaign. And this shows her creative potential within the, the ad racket. And this guy, Freddie Rumson, who works there, he actually pays Peggy some attention. He can see through the fact that she's a secretary and he's like, well, hang on. The best idea wins, and that's a good idea. And so going forward, Peggy really has a soft spot for Freddie Rumson. Um, Peggy's also casually hooking up with the now married Pete Campbell while they're in the office. Uh, and she's also strangely gaining a lot of weight, uh, which, I, by the way, I think is like, just from a technical standpoint, one of the lower points of the series. It, it just doesn't sell that they're like, the makeup is not that convincing because they kind of overdo the the weight gain. Um she has her first writing job, which is to come up with ad copy for a weight loss product. The irony, of course, is that Peggy is actually pregnant with Pete's baby. Big shocker. And that's right around when the season ends. Um, Don is being courted by this executive named Jim Hobart, who's an ad man for McCann Erickson, which is a much larger, more powerful firm that exists in the real world. And it is interesting that McCann is introduced competitively in the first season of Mad Men because that comes around very, very full circle. So um, Don doesn't take the job at McCann. Instead, he leverages it into a partnership role at Sterling Cooper. And his first task is to hire a head of account services, um, which is a job that Pete really wants. That's like Pete's goal. And Don doesn't owe Pete anything. In fact, he hates Pete. And so he passes, it, uh, passes him up for it. And he gives the job to this guy, Duck Phillips. Uh, the other main event of season one is that Don slash Dick Whitman, his younger brother has tracked him down at first with that package and then they meet face to face. He wants to have a relationship with his brother again because uh, he always kind of knew on some level that Dick hadn't really died in Korea. And so um, Don denies his identity at first. He ultimately gives him like a large amount of money to make him go away. And this isn't what the brother wanted. And he in fact takes his own life and that becomes a huge source uh, of guilt for Don Draper. And that really matters, I think, in the initial development of this character because we see this um, luxurious and frankly very selfish and at times sociopathic lifestyle that guides Don through uh, this vicious culture. And one of the reasons you're able to empathize with him is that he... I guess he's not a sociopath. He does have in him humanity. He's capable of guilt. He just tries his best to push that away. He believes that that humanity exists in Dick Whitman, who in his mind, on a certain level, is dead. He's killed him ideologically. So season two begins on this uh, really unromantic Valentine's Day. Don and Betty have this like stuffy night on the town and then they go back and he can't get it up and it's all very embarrassing for him in the bedroom. Trudy Campbell, uh, Pete's wife, she is sad because she wants to start a family and she can't get pregnant. But we know that, well, we don't know what the problem is, I guess, but we know that Pete is capable of fathering a child because he got Peggy pregnant. And um, he doesn't realize that, of course. Peggy is mysteriously MIA. There are rumblings that maybe she went away on some kind of like weight loss excursion. Pete's other problem is that he has to work under Don's new hire, Duck Phillips, um, who he doesn't like. Um, there's a terrible plane crash. This kills Pete's father. And this is like one of the examples of where we learn, I don't want to say a lack of humanity in Pete, but like he doesn't react to his father dying in a plane crash the way almost any of us would. He's like very cold about that. Um, this also creates kind of a 
a damage control situation that Don and Duck have to deal with with their other airline clients. Um, and, and Don now has another new girlfriend, kind of. Like, he's he's started a, a professional relationship with this crude TV comedian. And uh, Don is dealing with that by banging the guy's wife. Um, so Peggy returns a couple episodes into season two, and it's implied that she's carried her pregnancy to full term and gave the baby away so that nobody has to be the wiser and she can continue pursuing a career in advertising. And overall, though this like kind of remains within the character of Peggy, it does not have an enormous impact on the character of Peggy Olson, which is a little bizarre, but whatever. Uh, and she's befriended a priest around now who's played by Colin Hanks and she's a copywriter now she's gotten away from Don's desk she's not his secretary anymore and she's gonna like write copy which is a big thing for a woman in this environment and this kind of begins what is ultimately my favorite running joke of the entire series which is that Don Draper cannot keep a desk girl so after Peggy it's it's Jane who's like not she doesn't have the innocence of Peggy at all. She's like a little bit too savvy. There's this whole thing where Burt Cooper buys a fancy piece of art and he keeps it in his office under lock and key. And so one day after hours, all the second tier employees break into Cooper's office to just like ogle at the painting. And they're aided by Jane who had the key and Jane gets fired by Joan. I haven't mentioned Joan Harris yet at this point. Um, Holloway, Joan Holloway at this point. Um, she's like the office manager, bookkeeper, uh, and... She's no nonsense, but she's very cool. So Jane goes to Roger, feeling like she got the raw end of the deal. Roger uh, is like the junior head of the company. He's Roger Sterling, Sterling Cooper. He saves her job, and they end up having an affair, and Roger leaves his wife for Jane. And at the same time, Don's marriage is kind of in trouble because this obnoxious comedian is fully aware that Don is hooking up with his wife, and he tells Betty about it. Uh, and she's, of course, furious, but she still has Dawn come with her to visit her father, who's like in the early stages of dementia, and they're, he's like a source of comfort for her, but she's clearly not going to let this go, and I guess why should she? They get back, uh, and Dawn is in the doghouse, and so he takes a trip to California, and this is where we meet Anna, very important character. So um, she was the wife of the real Don Draper. She was married to the first Don Draper, who died, and she helped our Don Draper, Dick, conceal his secret uh and they kind of remained close friends uh, platonic friends over all these years and don kind of supports her financially he paid for her house and that's kind of the deal they've worked out and um so he returns to sterling cooper and there's a merger underway with this british company and at the same time joan is involved with this surgeon in training who gets her alone in don's office while don's in california and he sexually assaults joan it's Definitely the most horrific thing that ever happens on camera in this show. Um, at this point, Pete confesses his love for Peggy because he's not really feeling his marriage to Trudy. And Peggy diffuses that very quickly by confessing to Pete their child. Uh, and season two ends with Betty having a brief fling of her own. I guess this is kind of retaliation against Dawn. And after she does that, she's gotten it out of her system. She agrees to take Dawn back and she announces that she's pregnant with uh, she and Dawn's third child. So season three, uh, there's now this cross-section at the office of British executives, most notably Lane Price, who becomes very important down the road. Um, Betty's father is getting increasingly unwell, and so they decide to move him into the Draper house, which nobody seems to want. <laughs> Least of all, uh, Don, but Betty's brother also, he's clearly like sneaky, and he's trying to get the family house. Don puts the fear of God in him, and then I guess like Betty's family kind of fizzles out from there another girlfriend for Don um 
Roger and Jane get married. Oh, speaking of uncomfortable things that happen on camera, there's a blackface sequence uh, at the, the wedding reception. Um, and I guess Don sees this woman at the wedding who ultimately turns out to be his daughter Sally's teacher. Um, and so he kind of stalks this woman. He like follows her in his car when she's out for early morning runs. And they begin this brief but super passionate affair. Um, Betty's father, Gene, dies right around the same time as when she gives birth to a baby who they also name Gene. Um, Don takes up with Teach as another secret affair. At this point, is like four or five within the series. And, and Betty's making eyes at this politician, Henry Francis, who she meets at a work event. And speaking of work events, back at the Sterling wedding, uh, Don has met this old guy. He goes in, there's this great scene where he makes an old-fashioned. Um, and by the way, old-fashions kind of became my drink while watching uh, Mad Men, which I realize now in hindsight, like I had to make myself an old-fashioned while watching the Mad Men finale because symbolically that felt like the right thing to do. And in general, nothing about the culture of this time should be desirable, and yet they're so clearly trying to make it look gorgeous. Like, I wanted to drink an old-fashioned while watching Don Draper drink old fashions. And it's a show about advertising. And so the meta magic of Mad Men is that it's taking this thing that's not necessarily a thing I need. It's not necessarily a thing that's good for me. And it's making it a thing that I feel in my heart like I need. And so while it's a show about advertising, it's also a show that advertises an era that is now gone. And so that's very cool. Anyway, there's a scene where Don goes inside at the at the wedding. He makes himself an old fashioned. It's very cool. And he meets this older guy um, who we later learn is Conrad Hilton, eccentric proprietor of the Hilton hotel chain. And Connie's looking for ad men. Uh, securing this account would be like a huge boon for Don. Of course, it's a little more complicated than that. Hilton is like very difficult. He's very hard to work with. And he loves having Don trot around the globe at his beck and call. Um, and he kind of can't do anything about it. He's losing professional autonomy at the firm because Cooper knows his big secret about Dick Whitman, and he's using this to pressure Don into signing a long-term contract. This is the thing. Don wants to be free. He wants the option to leave the firm because he's a runner, uh, and they, of course, want to sign him to a contract. And so he does. I probably should have mentioned that not even Betty knows about Don not being Don. <laughs> like, he's kept this a secret from everyone. Uh, only now she does know about Don not being Don. She breaks into his secret desk at home and she finds this cache of old photos and letters that reveal his true identity. Uh, and this is the last straw. Like she could maybe stand a couple of affairs happening behind closed doors, but like this has created a, a trust rift that she's not going to be able to shake. And fair enough. Um, Joan is now married to the doctor guy. And of course we detest him because he attacked her and we watched that happen. He never does anything quite so heinous again, except pout all the time and be not very nice to her. But we hate him. We're not going to get past that. And he's just a big whiny baby. And he doesn't get the good surgeon job he wanted. And so he joins the army in like a a, a fit of self-obsession or something. Roger's daughter has a wedding, which we've been hearing about a lot at this point. Uh, there's a lot of planning going into this this the wedding of this fairly entitled young woman who's the daughter of Roger Sterling. Uh, and the whole night is a disaster. Unfortunate stuff abound. Don and, and Betty have to go, but their marriage is wrecked. Uh, Roger and Jane's marriage is not going so well, and in particular, his daughter is not pleased with her dad's new wife being essentially her age. Classic. Um, 
Pete is cranky, I think, about his standing at the company because he usually is. Oh, and JFK got killed the same day. And can you imagine, like, and it's the 60s where there's, like, a lot of patriotism and, and I mean, the the attack uh, of a president is, of course, horrifying and it just ruins everything about the day. And to add to the chaos, uh, Lane Price, who's the British executive who works with them, he reports that Sterling Cooper uh, is being sold, that the British company is going to sell them to McCann Erickson, who you remember from season one. Nobody wants to work for McCann. Um, and so... They form a plan, the good guys, uh, and this is how the, the, the season ends. Is there's like a formation of Sterling Cooper, Draper, Price, where these four big wig, bigwigs are, are partners together. They also take on Pete as a junior partner. Peggy comes as like one of their head copywriters. Joan comes to manage things. And Harry Crane, who's always around as kind of this like whiny second-tier employee, he doesn't ever have like a really significant role in the show but he he comes aboard to be their head of tv media and it's an exciting coup overshadowed only by betty filing for divorce with her new beau henry kind of in the waiting clearly she's going to take up with that guy at the start of season four and at this point they're like working out the kinks with the new company we have a new workplace set they have new offices and it's actually already quite the operation they've thrown this thing together fairly quickly quickly um and don has he moved out of the house? I guess he's moved out of the house, but only in like a halfway. Uh, he has an apartment in the city and Betty is still living at her house. And Henry, her new guy, has moved into the house too because they're married uh, and they're paying Don rent to live in the suburbs, which is crazy. But a little while later, they move into this ridiculous castle, very garish, uh, dark mansion. Um, some other family woes. Joan wants to start a family with Greg the doctor. Uh, who's been away in the military. Um, in a weak moment, she sleeps with Roger because they have this on-again, off-again, ill-advised affair going. Uh, Lane's family is still over in the UK, and they're quite unhappy with his commitment to the States. Like, it's they're not settling well. And Don goes again to visit Anna in California, and this is when he learns that she's dying eminently from cancer. And Don cares very deeply about Anna, and so he doesn't handle this news very well. Uh, back in New York City, he's he's vulnerable and he's drunk and he sleeps with his secretary, rendering yet another one uh, a bad fit for his desk. Um, Pete and Trudy do get pregnant, so that finally clicks. And he's not super psyched about it. Like, she's getting what she wants, but moving out of the city is kind of a part of the deal of having a family and he loves the city. He doesn't want to have to do that. And around now, um, things are, I guess, in terms of like, the corporate side of Mad Men, as stable as it ever gets. Don wins a Clio, which is like a Nobel Prize for ad men. Um, Peggy is a pretty important copywriter, uh, more so than I think she expected to ever be, and she's taking her job very seriously. She's a supervisor to, to juniors, including this guy Stan Rizzo, who she butts heads with. He's like not that respectful towards her. Um, they bring aboard... Ken Cosgrove, who's like, he's another one who's like always around, likable guy, doesn't have a lot of his own story throughout the show. There's this like kind of soft um, sea line story where Ken works in advertising, but his real dream is to be like a writer and he has a pen name and he gets short stories published in magazines and whatever. So he continues being uh, a series regular. Uh, he's also kind of a rival of Pete's and at one point they have to share the uh, accounts job that Pete always wanted. Like Pete gets it, but he has to share it with Ken. And that's 
a source of aggravation. Um, Don gets word that Anna has passed away. He gets a call from Anna's niece, Stephanie, and he goes into a really bad place. He does sort of climb out of it because he always like replaces his trauma with some kind of vice, whether it's drinking too much or finding a new girlfriend. In this case, uh, it's this woman, Faye, who has been hired to conduct like focus testing. She gets like focus data based on the firm's uh, campaigns. And they go into this really hot and heavy thing. Um, although I guess he's single, so it's not really an affair, but like it's it's still not a good situation. Don always gets invested really heavily, it seems. Uh, and that's that's partly what what keeps him from being able to keep a secretary. And so they figure, well, let's not get Don another cute young secretary. Let's hire Miss Blankenship, who's this like cranky old lady who's funny for a few episodes and then she just drops dead at her desk one day. Uh, and Megan, who's the receptionist at the firm at this point, takes over in the interim. Uh, and she proves her worth. She's like very good at the job. But like once again, Don has a cute young receptionist, which is going to be a problem going forward. Uh, Sally Draper, his oldest child, she's struggling with her parents' divorce. And she runs away from school and she turns up at uh, Sterling Cooper Draper Price and she gets kind of handed off to Faye while Don is busy working. He's like, hey, can you watch my kid? And Faye does have psychiatric training, but she's like not good with kids. And she does not appreciate being made to feel like Don's babysitter, which is reasonable. So she bails. Like their relationship fizzles. And and Sally has a, a tantrum in the office. And she runs into the arms of Megan Calvert, uh, who's just like really naturally wonderful with kids. And this gives Don an idea. Uh, because he has this plan looming to take his kids to Disneyland because, like, he's getting divorced and he wants to find some way to, like, connect with his kids. He's going to take them to Disney. Uh, and he's going to bring their housekeeper. Um, what's her name? Claudia? Clara? Um, he's going to bring the housekeeper to, like, help him take care of the kids because it's the 1960s. But Betty has fired the housekeeper, and so he needs someone to come. Uh, and so he invites Megan, who's good with Sally. And somewhere in there unsurprisingly, Don and Megan sleep together. Uh, and they return from Disney, and he very hastily tells her that he's in love with her, and he asks her to marry him, and she, of course, accepts, because who wouldn't accept a marriage proposal from Don Draper? I think I would do the same. Um, and this feels really super to everyone. Like, everyone in the office is like, oh, gee, this is not going to work. But they have bigger problems. Uh, Lee Garner Jr., who is the head of Lucky Strike Tobacco, which is very definitively their most important client. Like, without Lucky Strike, they would not have been able to break away from McCann Erickson. This is, as as Roger once says, Lucky Strike could turn our lights off. And it looks like they might do that because he informs Roger that he's taking his business elsewhere and their company could be destroyed. So they make a play for a competing cigarette company. I think it's Philip Morris. And when that falls through, Don goes for a Hail Mary which becomes like one of the great renegade moves of his career. And he, without the consultation of any of his peers, takes out a full-page ad in the New York Times <laughs> explaining why the tobacco industry is unfaithful. And I think the the title of the article is something like, uh, Why I'm Quitting Tobacco. And it's really bold to do that, like for an advertising company to basically shoot all potential business with tobacco in the foot going forward is like, really risky because you want their money uh and it really scares his colleagues they're like what the hell man now we're really uh up the creek um he's ever the rogue he's he's not really sorry for what he did season five uh don and megan 
are married and they live in this like super trendy Manhattan apartment. She early on throws him a surprise birthday party, which completely misreads that he's a very private person. He would not want his colleagues to be in his home. Uh, And that just kind of signals that these two were not, are not ever on the same page. Um, And everybody who works at the firm attends the party, except for Joan, who is now pregnant, like she wanted to be. She, uh, She's on maternity leave, actually. she Maybe she had the baby. She's given birth to not Greg's baby, but Roger's baby because they hooked up that time. Everyone thinks it's it's Greg's baby, except uh, she and Roger, of course, know the truth. Greg comes home from his posting and announces that he has to return, which at first is sad for Joan, but then it's an angering thing for Joan because she learns that he, in fact, volunteered to go back. Like, this is where he feels like he matters. And again, you're just like, You're an asshole, dude. Like, you have responsibilities at home, and you're just wanting to feel like the hero all the time. And then things get, like, a lot worse for Joan, because SCDP is doing okay after losing Lucky Strike, but they're, like, still kind of in a tricky spot, and they could totally rally if Lane can land a Jaguar account. Like, the only thing better than a cigarette account would be a car. And the problem is one of their guys is into Joan. He's like this fat slob, uh, like misogynist guy. And he wants to trade his vote for their business for a night with Joan. I know, like this is like one of the great examples of like, wow, times have changed. Would that really have happened back in the day? And she obviously doesn't want to do that. Um, And all the partners are on board anyway, basically saying like, hey, take one for the team. And Don tells her not to do it. Like, no matter how much money the firm agrees to pay you, and I think it, they even offer her a partnership because Joan ultimately becomes like a a, a low uh, a low ranking partner in the firm. Um, he's like, doesn't matter. You want to be successful. You want to make money. Like, do it another way. Don't do it. But signals get crossed, and she feels like she has no choice, and so she does it. And now they have Jag, but at what cost? And speaking of cars, by the way, right around now, uh, Pete is going to driver's ed and he like is sort he doesn't he doesn't have an affair although it wouldn't be above him but he's like heavy flirting with a teenager in his uh driver's ed class anyway he uh he hates his life so roger goes to this party with jane they take lsd and he realizes while he's high while he's tripping that he doesn't want to be married to jane anymore so they split up uh, and Peggy, who's the only one at this point who's actually getting any work done, she kind of whiffs a meeting with Heinz. Uh, and Megan, of all people, steps in and saves the situation with like her own great idea. And so this exposes Megan as quite the creative. Um, Don and Megan very briefly are this like advertising power couple, but that's not what she wants to do. She is creative, but she ultimately quits the the firm and, and picks up her old career as an actress. And she eventually gets cast uh, as a regular on a soap opera. And Peggy is still feeling kind of stilted in her role. She's in a good spot, but she wants more. Um, she oversees some like bumbling writers, including Stan. Um, the Heinz situation has felt her feeling I guess, kind of uninspired, and so she seeks external interviews. She starts looking for other gigs, and she gets this sweet job after meeting with Ted Shaw. And Ted Shaw is one of Don's industry rivals. Don and Peggy, who've always had, like, a really kind of beautiful, like, older brother, younger sister kind of platonic relationship, they have a tender farewell. And it's also been a rough go for Lane Price these days. His family, 
still not found their footing. And so for tax reasons that I don't remember exactly understanding at the time and certainly don't now, he wires $8,000 of the company's money to England, to his family, I guess, over Christmas. I think it's around Christmas. Uh, and Don learns about this because the caper was not very well disguised and he's forced to fire Lane. He has a private meeting with Lane and he's like, listen, like I'm going to need your, your keys. Uh, and that night Lane hangs himself in his office and it's, it's bad. It's really rough. Um, this sparks another spiral of guilt and inner torment for our embattled hero. Like obviously at this point he is aware that his brother, uh, took his own life all those years ago. And, and Don felt guilty about that. Cause he kind of felt like he could have prevented that by like agreeing to have a relationship with, with his brother. And, that doesn't make it his fault, but like, kind of. And and then the Lane thing, he is the one who fired Lane. And so he's not at fault for Lane's crimes, but it's yet another source of, of tremendous guilt. Um, there's a lot of competition at this time between SEDP and I forget the name of the firm where Ted Shaw and Peggy are working, but they're like, they're neck and neck and they're both competing for Heinz, which by the way, it's very clear that they have like two accounts. There's the baked beans Heinz and there's ketchup separately. And and Don and Megan are that's right, they're living in in their their Manhattan apartment and they're like kind of couples friends with the other couple, the other penthouse couple down the hall, who's this like important surgeon, and his wife, Linda Cardellini, who is the other half of Don's latest affair. And at this point, he's been married to Megan for like a year, and you know it's not perfect, but you're like happy to see that Don is growing a little bit. He's he's better enough in that he's not having affairs anymore. He's he's trying to keep his vows. Never mind, it wasn't built to last. And so he's carrying on another secret affair and totally shitting where he eats. Like it's across the hall. How is this not going to fall apart? Uh, Pete is screwing the pooch as well. He tries to take the company public because uh, he has like a little bit of, of leverage corporately now because he's a small time partner. He ends up, one of his big accounts is uh, Vix, um, because his father-in-law, Trudy's dad, like works with Vix, and he loses Vix when he runs into his father-in-law at a brothel, um, and Trudy finds out about it, and she throws Pete out of the house, um, which is bad, but he didn't want to live in the suburbs. He's pretty unhappy anyway. Um, at this point, I think maybe we lost Jag, but a new car has entered the the picture and maybe even like a better situation because they have the chance to pitch Chevy. And so there's a meeting. Um, the Draper people, the Ted Shaw people take turns stumping for the big contract. Like they both have back-to-back -back meetings trying to get the Chevy business. And uh, Don Draper and Ted Shaw meet at the hotel bar afterward. And they have this kind of like heart to heart over the futility of their incessant competition. Like Jesus, we're both good at this. We both have all these uh, assets and contacts in the business, why don't we design a new merger for our two companies? And that's nice for us because now everybody's back in one place and Peggy's working with Don again. So Don's uh, affair with Sylvia, who's Linda Cardellini, has gotten like beyond serious. Don does this thing where like he's not necessarily just like looking for strange. He has a wife who he usually loves, like to the best of his ability. Like he even loved Betty. Uh, and he tells, he told Betty at one point, like, I'm surprised you ever loved me. I think because he like, doesn't in his heart feel like he's worthy of love. Um, and same with Megan, like they have some weird moments and yet they also have some loving moments. Um, 
And then he gets girlfriends who he also kind of loves. And he does with Sylvia too, but he is really serious and he like locks her in a hotel room for days on end and enacts this creepy domination fantasy. And she's like kind of into it for a little while, but it goes on for way too long. And so she breaks up with him and this incites another Draper tailspin and she lives in his building, right? And so he's very easily able to stalk her by like listening to her apartment door and stuff. And um, you think it's over between them. They do actually sleep together one more time because Don pulls some strings to get Sylvia's son out of the draft. And Sally, who's visiting New York with her friend, uh, catches them hooking up. And this exposes to her for the first time that her father isn't extramarital cad <laughs> and she's she's at this point already been growing like a lot more precocious for obvious reasons um soon thereafter she's sent to boarding school and, and like i know that sally draper gets kind of a bad rap for being like bratty in in the show um one i think kiernan shipka is a good actor um and i don't like bratty kids in things and i never ever held it against sally draper like the whole time anytime you're like ugh at sally I have to remember that her mother is Betty, who's not nice to her kids, and her dad is Don, who's not unnice to his kids, but obviously he's, like, got a lot of problems, and so you totally understand why the kids are fucked up. Um, so Don has lost control of his life at this point, and he's scandalized his daughter, and he feels horrified that this happens, and so he tells Megan that he wants to start over. New beginnings. Let's you and I move to California. So Sterling Cooper... Uh, and partners, they're now Sterling Cooper and partners. They have a sun-kissed deal in the works, and so it kind of could be good to have a guy on the ground in California. The problem is, Ted Shaw also wants to go west, young man, because uh, he's in love with Peggy. The time they worked together at their own firm and, and moving into Sterling Cooper and partners, um, he is really in love with Peggy, which she knows, by the way, and he has a wife and kids, and he doesn't want to mess that up, and so he has to get away from Peggy. And... That's going to be a problem for like five minutes. Don's like, no, I got to go. My wife just quit her job in the soap opera. She set up a bunch of meetings in Hollywood. And then when he finds out Ted's inner pain about Peggy, he tells Ted that, okay, fine, you can have the California job. And this really leaves Megan in the lurch because, again, she quit her job and she wants to move to California. And so Don and Megan agree to be a bi-coastal couple, which feels like the beginning of the end. Um, and actually, Don... Oh, that's right. That's when this happens. And so what we discover is that when Ted goes to California and Megan goes to California, Don stays in New York, even though he could have gone with his wife to support her in her acting career in, in Hollywood, because that's when Don gets benched, which sustainably is, I think, my biggest issue with the show. It incites a lot of important character development. It's good for the ultimate outcome of the story, but I just kind of thought that the acceleration of we need to get Don out of here, he's a liability, is it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Like Roger, who to this point has been a good friend to Don and understanding of a lot of Don's quirks, is all of a sudden super anti-Draper and Draper's like really thrown to the dogs by the advertising game. And that just kind of felt like a little force to me, but whatever. What happens is he goes off the rails in this important pitch meeting and he unloads all this personal trauma about his painful youth. Um, he doesn't necessarily say flat out that he's not Don Draper, but he reveals himself to be a liability in front of clients. Like maybe he's going to like make them feel sad and guilty and like he's going to like tell them he's just going to overshare 
And so Don's not fired per se because he's like a, a major stakeholder in the company, but he's not given a return date. He's not allowed around. Um, and he's never been lower. It's, he's like never been in such a, a dark place. And that's the end of the penultimate season. So um, he hasn't told anybody, I guess, he's been put on leave. And that's what I mean when he say he could have gone to California. He lets Megan go to California and he just stays in New York. She doesn't even know that he technically isn't working. Um, she's living in like a house in the Hollywood Hills. And Don, remember when I said Freddie Rumson is the guy who kind of helped Peggy get her start? He's like a contract worker. He doesn't work for the firm anymore. There's an episode midway through the series where he's drinking too much. He doesn't, he's not able to hold his liquor to the same extent as like a lot of these uh, other ad men. And at one point he just like pisses himself in the office and he gets pushed out. They're like, yeah, you're you're just kind of a mess. You're going to have to go on some kind of like uh, AA treatment or something. And you can work uh, like on spec for us if you like. And so Don uses Freddie Rumson to basically be a conduit to still get ad co copy uh, submitted to the company. And so like uh, Freddie takes Don's work, passes it off as his own, and then he pays Don in cash so that Don is still having his say at the firm without anybody <laughs> knowing. Uh, and also Don's most recent secretary, I didn't mention, she's also named Don. Uh, she's working for him privately as well and getting like inside scoops. So he still knows what's happening. Uh, she's, at least on the books, working on Lou's desk. And Lou is the guy that they hired to be like the interim creative director while Don is gone for X amount of time. Uh, and he's incredibly unlikable. It's, he, he's just, he, it's very clear he doesn't have the flair that Don has. He doesn't, he doesn't have like the, uh, the forward thinking ingenuity of Don. And he's just not very nice. He's not interested in trying new things or, or being daring. And he's quite cocky. And also there's this like weird side plot that his real dream is to be like Charles Schultz. And he has kind of like a hacky, uh, comic strip idea that if he could get that off the ground, he'd leave the ad game forever. And ultimately, that is what happens to Lou. Um, there's a weird thing that happens with Lou also where because Don hasn't told anyone that he lost his job, uh, his kids don't know. And at one point, Sally turns up at the office not knowing her dad doesn't work there. And she's like face to face with Lou. And so because Sally found out about Don... Obviously, Megan was going to learn the truth about Don not working, and she's obviously very not happy because he could have come with her. And so, as an apology, he swears to his wife that he's going to get his job back. And so he turns to his old buddy, Roger Sterling, who was drunk, and they had like a, a, a bit of a, I think it was kind of stiff, but, but Roger was in a soft moment, and he invited Don in for a meeting. And so Don shows up Monday morning, hoping to be able to make the case to get his job back. But Roger kind of forgot that this was ever something he promised. And so nobody expects that Don is going to show up, and it's very awkward. Everyone's treating him really weird. Um, after a long and awkward day, they do reluctantly grant Don's return, but not in the same role. He has to work under Lou, who's an asshole. He's not allowed to make any big moves. He's not allowed to be alone with clients. And he can't drink on company property either because they believe that his drunkenness is why he went off the rails that other time. Uh, it's not easy for Don to accept this new role because he doesn't take orders well and he doesn't stay sober well. Um, 
they settle down, I guess, a little bit. There's this guy, Jim Cutler. I, I didn't mention Jim, but Jim used to work with Ted Shaw. He was a part of, of that merger. Um, he tries to get Don fired on the basis that the probation has been breached. And there was a whole thing between Don and Freddie Rumson where he got super drunk at work and they were able to kind of keep it a secret. But like that was to indicate that Don is not going to be able to follow this new office dynamic. And, and Jim is aware of this happening. And so he tries to get Don fired. But at this point, Roger's over it. Like, ugh, can we just let bygones? Don's back. And so they hold a private meeting with who else but McCann Erickson and have them buy their firm, uh, a motion for which they have the votes until Burt Cooper passes away watching the moon landing because he's like in his 80s or something. Um, and so now they need Ted Shaw, who's previously their rival, to come aboard so that they can actually make this deal with McCann work. And they are able to do that. They convince Ted uh, on the basis that they all have like five-year contracts with McCann. So the company's sold and they have to move into new offices and like march to the beat of someone else's drum. Um, and at this point, all the characters are filthy rich because they got bought for like tons of cash, including Joan, by the way, who's like still more or less in the same role. She's able to get a couple of accounts going. Uh, Avon Cosmetics is one of her accounts. And like she, she wants to be more than just an office manager as well. And she's a stakeholder and she's filthy rich, but she's not totally fulfilled. Everybody's kind of crushing it, except now they're at the big firm. It's not a smooth transition. Um, oh, that's right. So so, so Joan uh, wants more autonomy, very immediately sexually harassed by, by one of her um, new potential clients. She later sexually harassed by one of her colleagues. And so she reports her discomfort with this dynamic to the company head, Jim Hobart. Um, and he just blows her off. He's like, sorry, honey, not going to help you. This is how we do things here. And so Joan takes her payout and she walks. She leaves McCann Erickson. She gets even richer and she bails. And honestly, good for her. Um, Don also realizing this, he needed change, but this was not the change he needed. Uh, he and Megan formally break up. This was a long time coming. He writes her a million dollar check as a divorce settlement. Um, and then he resumes his man about town ways. And he's struck in particular by this waitress. So he's like sleeping around for a little while, sees this waitress. And I guess she's supposed to be intriguing because in her eyes, he can see familiar pain or something bizarre I don't it's a little hard to read honestly at one point I kind of thought that this girl was just like because there's a bit of a history of Don seeing people who aren't there like he has like face-to-face -face encounters with Burt Cooper after he's dead or like he just has these weird visions of people who might not literally be people and I thought maybe that was the case with this woman Diana I don't think so though because other people interacted with Diana but like their whole relationship they have a, like a brief fling um it's just it's very dark like she's she's very unhappy and she talks a little bit about her her kids she had two daughters one who died one who she abandoned then she up and disappears and Don tracks her down or tracks down her family and the ex-husband is like you got to get away like she's nuts she she's a tornado she ruins everybody's lives just get away from Diana and then that's that so Maybe I need a little help on understanding what Diana was for. It was like three episodes of the series, and I always found it like kind of intrusive on this eminently concluding series. Like I didn't have time to deal with another girlfriend for Dawn, and yet here she was. Anyway, that's over. Um, okay, a character recap. I haven't talked about Peggy in a little while. At this point, she's a bit of a question mark. She's, I guess, settling into McCann better than anyone else because she's 
good at her job. She's able to work here. Um, otherwise, we don't really know what's going to happen for her. Roger also not really dealing with the transition super well. Um, his arc essentially concludes with him marrying Megan's mother. Uh, they had had an affair about a season ago. Megan's mom came into town and she's like kind of a, a mischievous lady. She's very proud. She's kind of high society. Um, and Roger finds that curious. Like he's spent the last little while searching for companionship in younger women or occasionally in Joan. Joan, of course, who could see through him and and deserved better. Jane was a huge uh, uh, error in judgment. Um, and so he's really kind of like attracted to this Megan's mom, who's not very nice. Um, but I think ultimately, though, though Roger Sterling is a really important character throughout the show, he doesn't have to have as rich of a developmental arc as, say, Don Draper uh, because of Don Draper. And that was one of the one of the really important realizations I made about Don and uh, Roger's contrast, like the juxtaposition of these two developments, like they have all the same vices, right? Don and Roger, they both drink too much. They're both really bad husbands. They're both uh, selfish and kind of slaves to the, the business. Uh, and they can't say no. They're just debaucherous degenerates. But for whatever reason, uh, Roger has peace. Like, he he has, you know, some ups and downs, but he does not have the, the tortured inner soul that Don does, for better or worse. And so it's actually good that in the end, he's able to just kind of, like, flit off and marry Megan's mom, which is an age-appropriate woman who kind of, like, has the same ethics as him, and he's able to be happy. And so I'm okay with that as a conclusion for for Roger. The only other thing that happens for him is that he's not serving as the father of Joan's baby, Kevin, even though he is biologically the father. Um, he's She's doing that on her own because she's divorced Greg at this point. Um, and so she's like Joan Holloway Harris, I guess. Um, he goes to visit Joan one more time and the two of them really do have like a, a tender, affectionate history and so he says like look I don't have like a lot of dependents my daughter's a lunatic um I am gonna leave like most of my money and I've got a lot of it to Kevin and so that's kind of like a nice thing that he does for their illegitimate child um at this point Joan does have a new boyfriend his name is Richard I think um he's kind of shows early signs of not being great because he's not very cool about her being a mom and then he comes around and he seems like he's gonna be okay for her um Pete and Trudy Pete's another character who like finally gets a job where he's valued and respected and he feels like he's high ranking, which I guess is what he wanted. But because you never really liked Pete, it's, it's never going to be that satisfying. And they don't waste too much time on Pete and Trudy in the last few episodes. But he and Trudy actually get back together in the end. They have a, a daughter, Tammy, and like they fly away. I forget where they, they leave New York and he becomes like a very important person. Um, and so that's Pete. Betty is taking psych classes. Remember back when she was like a psychiatry patient herself? Like she's decided that she likes gossip because she likes the way people's brains work and she got something out of that experience herself. And so she, now that she has kids who are like a little bit older, is going to be more than just a housewife and she's going to, to go to school. Um, on the first day at the new shop, McCann, Don is invited to a Miller beer meeting, which, I mean, that should be very exciting. Like, that's, this is an example of the kind of account 
that makes working for McCann very appealing to a guy like Don, like Miller beer. There's nothing bigger. Um, and when he gets to the meeting, it's just not what he's used to. It's not the creative environment that he thrives within. It's large and impersonal. And when the table heads start like prattling on, Don just walks out and disappears into the mist. He's like, I don't need this. And in the second last episode of Mad Men, uh, Don Draper's like a man on the road. He's he's wearing uh, jean jackets now. And he's still looking for something. He's like looking for that which he might not even recognize to stumble upon. His car breaks down in this small town and he's holed up in a shabby motel and he's, I guess he's like, they, people kind of take a liking to him because again, like people are attracted to Don the same way we are. And he's invited to join the other local vets um, at a drunken fundraiser for one of the guys. Everybody likes him. There's a there's like a woman who runs the motel who has taken to Don because he's like fixing things for her. Don is like handy, right? He fixes her typewriter and then he fixes her Coke machine, which in hindsight is a, a heavy-handed metaphor. Um, he sheepishly engages in a night of like war stories. One of the guys actually is um, David Dinman, who plays Roy in The Office, which is distracting when you see him. But like, he's this like big tough guy who's Don's age, and they kind of relate because they were both uh, posted near each other in in Korea. And Don tells the truth about his experience in Korea to like-minded people for the first time. He feels like an equal for the first time, and then it goes south. Um, okay, so I mentioned Betty is uh, at school. She takes a fall at school. She like stumbles up the stairs. Um, and breaks a rib because she's wearing high heels at a university. And she has to go to get x-ray x-rays. And the x-rays reveal that Betty has advanced lung cancer and less than a year to live. And so her husband, Henry, brings Sally home from school. Uh, even though Betty was like, she didn't want her kids to know that she had cancer. She's like very proud, right? And so she just wants to like remain stoic and tell she crumbles to dust and her kids never have to know that she was ever at any point vulnerable. Um, and Henry knows that this is wrong because he, even though we don't really like Henry, he's kind of a, a weenie. Uh, he loves Betty and uh, he knows that Sally should know and that Sally is tough and can talk to her mom seriously. And so he goes to Sally's school, brings Sally home and Betty gives her instructions for the postmortem. She's like, look, Henry doesn't have the spine you have. When I'm dead, this is what needs to happen. Um, and that's kind of crazy in hindsight. Poor Sally. Like, again, like, Sally is going to be a better person than her parents, but she, Jesus, she, it, it was a hard road for her to get there. She didn't come by anything easy. Um, Don awakes after his night at the Legion, and all the guys who he was drinking with and enjoying the company of the night before are there to beat the hell out of him. They are convinced that he stole $500 from their fundraiser collection and they're going to uh, beat the shit out of him until he gives the money back. And obviously Don doesn't need anyone's $500. He's like a ridiculously wealthy man and he can't convince them otherwise. And so they run him out of town and Don knows that the person who stole the money was in fact this young con man who works at the motel. And I guess the con man is supposed to be like a young Don. Like he's also a guy who's like, um, a cowboy, like just trying to make ends meet, not necessarily doing the ethical thing, but like surviving by being what he needs to be. And even though like <laughs> his 
uh, endeavors got Don into trouble, Don must on some level appreciate that because he offers the kid a ride up the road and he gives the kid his Cadillac. He gives him the keys and he's like, don't waste it. And he gets out and Don strands himself on the side of the road. And then we're at the, the Mad Men finale. And at this point, I'm excited um, because I've always heard, and I heard from Becky a lot, that like this show has one of the great series finales. And so I was excited. I was excited for that. But I'm also thinking like, it seems like we got a lot of loose ends to tie up. Um, I, guess, I guess it's not really clear how long Don's been away, but not so long that like Betty's cancer has advanced too, too much. And he still doesn't know about it, but he's continuing to live on the road and he's kind of taken up a bit of uh, an occupation racing cars and financially backing other racers. He's got some buddies who are like grease monkeys and he wears Levi's and it's a new Don Draper. Um, and he's just otherwise like a middle American drifter. And he still talks to Sally because he's got a better relationship with Sally now, I guess. I mean, he's not around for his kids, but like he can be an adult with his now fairly adult daughter. Um, and this is when he learns about Betty's cancer. She's like, mom's dying. I'm not being dramatic. Um, we got to do something about this. Um, and that's when Don realizes he has to come back to reality. Like he wants to come raise his kids. Uh, he calls up Betty, who for the most part, like after they got divorced, th the main reason you hate Betty, in spite of her being justified in leaving Don, um, is that she's just like so unpleasant to Don and her kids as well. But she's just like a generally pretty unhappy, uh, rigid, difficult person. Like you can tell it's just as hard to be Betty inside her brain as it is to be around Betty. And so she's a, a fully rounded character and human, but you don't like Betty. Um, except there are the occasional moments where she and Don are able to be friendly. And this is one of those moments. It's the last time they ever interact over the phone, uh, in the series, that is. Um, they have like a, a frank conversation. It's tender. They talk about the future. Uh, and she never moves from her stubborn ways. The last thing we see of Betty is her sitting at the kitchen table while Sally does the dishes, which feels symbolic um, of having to be a parent for her parents, I think. And notably, Betty is sitting with impeccable posture in finely done makeup at her kitchen table to an audience of no one while having incredibly uh, destructive lung cancer and she's just sucking on a cigarette. And so this is really emblematic of Betty's unwillingness to change. And that's okay because like I mentioned before, Roger didn't need to change. Like a lot of people don't change. And maybe ultimately this is a show about a person's capacity for change because that's really what we come full circle with uh, with Don. And I'll get to that in a minute. But like that's kind of the big difference between say someone like Peggy or Joan or Don who go on this progressive arc and someone like Betty who in her heart is this and insists on being this and is going to let it be the end of her. And that's bye bye birdie. Don goes to visit Anna's niece, Stephanie, who he's met a couple of times. She was the one who told him about Anna having passed away. Um, he kind of has like a, a sort of parental relationship with her at this point. He has his uh, diamond ring back from Megan, which initially belonged to Anna. And he wants to give this back to Stephanie. Um, 
Stephanie also had a baby at one point. Like she came into his life about a year before that and she was very pregnant and Don and Megan gave her $1,000 cash to just like help her out with her pregnancy. <clears throat> and so in the meantime, Stephanie's had a rough go as well. She had the baby, but she's not raising her child anymore. Uh, and she is also on some kind of journey looking for peace and enlightenment. And so she takes Don to this spiritual retreat by the ocean in Big Sur. Um, Joan is still not working. She's got this other boyfriend I mentioned. She doesn't need the money, but she wants respect, right? She like wants to find a place in the world where she can feel like she has uh, an entitled position. She meets with Ken Cosgrove, um, who's a writer now, and he shows her an opportunity to work uh, as a film producer. I guess Ken Cosgrove is based on like a real ad executive from the 60s who worked in advertising and sold short stories to magazines until eventually became a millionaire selling a, a screenplay. And I, I guess that's exactly what happened for Ken. And you like Ken throughout the show. Um, he has a meeting with, with Joan and he shows her uh, an entry point into the film business, um, which Richard, uh, Joan's boyfriend, is not into. And this is where he kind of returns to his original form where he's actually not supportive. He just wants a doting girlfriend who he can like take to Venice and they can like have sex and drink wine and stuff. And that's not what Joan wants. And so they break up and Joan goes to Peggy, who she knows is ambitious. And she's like, hey, why don't you leave McCann and we can start a film production company. You and I will be partners. And Peggy is like, I don't know. That's not really what I do. I write advertising, but like maybe because that sounds interesting. And she also likes the idea of being a partner in something. And so Peggy goes back to the office and she shares the news with Stan, who is her subordinate and has always been a friend to her, if maybe a thorn in her side. Like whenever they talk, like they talk very frank with each other and they're kind of hard on each other, but it's always very clearly done from a place of like a lot of tenderness and care. And so Stan tells Peggy that he thinks that, look, you're going to be successful in whatever you pursue. Like you're on the road. You're going to be okay. But he discourages her going into the movie business. He's like, but that's not, that's, I don't do that one. They have a fight about it because she feels unsupported. And then they go over the phone and they're having a phone conversation, which by the way, becomes some of the best freaking romantic comedy I have seen in a very long time. And I am a romantic comedy connoisseur. Like I love, I love when romantic comedy is done well. And when like the two people realize that they love each other it is hard to write it well, and they do it so well. They have this uh, like little bickerment over the phone, and Stan admits that he really just discouraged her from going into movies because he loves her. And Peggy realizes in real time that she loves him too. And that's the happy ending for Peggy Olson that we needed. And I didn't even realize that we needed. But there's something really incredible in a story that's about a woman finding respect and legitimacy in the professional world, ultimately ending conclusively with her romantic happiness. Because like Peggy has a number of different boyfriends throughout the show who are like mostly weenies. Like they're okay. Like I don't remember ever hating any of, of Peggy's boyfriends, but like you know they're not end game. And ultimately you know that Peggy's main story is getting respect and is being successful and at one point she tells Don that like her real dream is to build something that lasts is to like write a commercial 
that stays. And Don kind of guffaws at that, like, well, that doesn't exist. Also going to come back in a second. Um, and so there's something beautiful about knowing that whether Peggy goes to work with Joan or if she remains at McCann where she's successful, she's going to be good. She like she already set herself up. And now she also deserves to be with someone who loves her and and will worship her and and her likewise. Like she deserves that companionship. She's got a weird mom. She never really felt uh, like she had the other half and she does with Stan. And so she doesn't need anybody. I I, I think that was, well, she does need, anyway, um, great conclusion for Peggy. Um, the other thing is that uh, Joan doesn't need anybody either. And so the nice thing about Joan not getting Peggy as a partner ultimately is that she can achieve this kind of respect and autonomy uh, and singularity without the support of some other person, whether it's a man or it's a Peggy Olson. Like she tells Peggy when she's trying to pitch her the job, like, look, we need two names to make this sound real. Well, Joan's already got two names. And so that's pretty cool. Our last really tormented Don Draper scene. This is the last time where he, this is kind of like where it all bubbles over for Don. He has been MIA at McCann for a while, right? Like he's been, He's nobody knows where he just walked out of that Miller beer meeting and nobody knows what happened to him. And everybody's kind of pissed. And Peggy is concerned because she cares about Don. And so he calls her office and she's like, what the hell, man? Like everybody, why don't you come back to work? And he's like, he tells her that he uh, is so lost. It's the first time he really admits to being like a broken person. And he's like, I'm not a good person. I broke all my vows. I stole a man's name and I made nothing of it. I'm a total loser and it, it, like she's very worried about him and she basically says like come back here don't you want to work on coke like they have they have coca-cola and like look isn't that like something that appeals to the Don Draper I know and he kind of just like gets off the phone call and that's when Peggy has her romantic moment with Stan so she gets kind of distracted but like we don't know what's going to happen to Don but he goes to group therapy he's still at this uh this retreat in in California he goes to the circle therapy which up to this point, he's gotten nothing from. But he listens to this confessional. This strange man gives a confessional about feeling invisible and unloved in his life. He says it's like being inside a refrigerator and people who he's supposed to be intimate with will open the fridge and root around and grab things next to him. And it's as if he's not even seen. And for the first time ever, Don Draper relates to someone. And he's heard his feelings explained in words that even Don, who believes that what you think love is, was created by guys like him to sell nylons. And he's always been so cynical about feelings. He, for the first time, hears his own struggle articulated in a way that he never could have. And he breaks down crying. And he crosses the circle and he just grabs this strange man and holds him. And the final scene of Mad Men is Don Draper or Dick Whitman, whoever he is, by the ocean, participating in a meditation class outside. And with clarity and peace, finally embracing him, like finally beginning to work through his own humanity 
and finally giving himself the allowance to be imperfect, a smile creeps across his face, and a real smile. And he's struck with the idea for the greatest advertisement of the 1970s. I like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. And that's Mad Men. And I'm going to need a lot more time to know whether or not I really think that this is the great series finale that people say it is. But I know it's not a bad series finale because a bad series finale is not open for interpretation. It just is what it is. Um, and this is definitely open for interpretation. Like, I'm aware that after the fact, uh, there was some debate over whether or not Don Draper returned to McCann Erickson, like returned to his advertising business that made him feel so empty uh, and pitched, I'd like to buy the world a Coke and, you know, built something that lasted like Peggy always wanted to do. Or if being friends with Peggy was, you know, Peggy's route into being inspired by this thing that changed her friend that like maybe Don didn't return, but like, he went on to have close relationships with the people he truly loved, like, say, his kids and Peggy Olson. And she could see that Don was then a better person, and that inspired her to create the greatest ad, which was her dream to do, right? I don't think that's the case, and I think, in fact, uh, Matthew Weiner has talked about how, no, Don, of course, came up with, <laughs> I'd like to buy the world of Coke. But I'm just, I feel a little weird about that because that means that Don was not fixed. And I know that a person can't just be fixed in one group therapy and one yoga class, but like, it seems like working in advertising was the bandage that enabled him to feel cynical and enabled him to hide from the truth of Dick Whitman. And so is returning to work at McCann to create cynical ads, um, leaning back into realizing that he never was Dick Whitman, he always was Don Draper, or is or is it that he goes back and he creates an ad that actually is not that cynical? Like I'd like to buy the world a Coke. There's a there's a point earlier in in Mad Men where he talks about how advertising is about showing people what they need. It's making them need it, and that's really antithetical to the conceit of I'd like to buy the world a Coke. It's it's not like I, I bought you a Coke. It's not because you needed it. It's because I wanted to do that for you. Like. I know advertising is inherently um, based on it, like it's a it's a it's a financial thing, right? It's 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 commerce, literally, um, and so that has an inherent cynicism. But like maybe Don is able to be, he's able to have a legacy, and he's able to to live forever through something that actually is quite decent. And like this is kind of getting too much into it because um, it doesn't matter. But uh, Coca-Cola, frankly, does have some of the best commercials of all time. Maybe starting with I'd Like to Buy the World of Coke and then for the next half a century, like, God knows when you go to the movie theater at Christmas time and they play the Coca-Cola commercial, it's the one that's most likely to bring a tear to your eye because it strikes some kind of sincerity chord within you. And so if we're to believe that that's Don Draper's legacy after this cynical, tortured, dark life, that's actually gorgeous. That's really nice. And so 
I like that for him, but I don't know if that's a realistic uh, interpretation. Maybe I just have to let it sit with me for a little bit longer. Now, I, something I did read, I know I said earlier that I didn't do any reading, but I actually, I had the curiosity to Google that commercial because the other thing that, like, I this was the thing that I knew about the series finale is that in the end, Don Draper comes up with, I'd like to buy the world of Coke. And so I wasn't sure exactly how um, significant that was going to loom over the finale. And it's not too much, although it is the thing you come away kind of uh, uh, trying to qualify or legitimize or, or understand. Um, it did matter so much that I witnessed the entire journey to that moment. But I I did know about that. If I'm watching Mad Men in real time for the first time with the rest of the world, and I didn't know that's coming, I didn't know that Don was going to figuratively fix the Coke machine, um, I might have been more moved by it. But probably my biggest uh, exclusion is the fact that I was not alive in the 70s to experience the magnitude of I'd like of I'd like to buy the world of coke the internationalism of that successful campaign and so maybe that's what's kind of precluded me from feeling really full circle about this uh this conclusion it doesn't so much matter um but I was curious to know a little bit about that commercial and two really interesting things one I'd like to buy the world of coke is a creation of McCann Erickson, which is a real powerful advertising firm with like hundreds of offices all over the country. And so that definitely lends credence to the idea that either Don or Peggy are behind it, except for that in real life, they're not. It's this guy named Bob Baker, maybe. So an advertising executive who like had a lot of success. And by the way, also came up with the phrase, it's Miller time. So it's not an accident that there was also a Miller pitch meeting underway right around the time when Don is having his crisis of faith. Um, imagine the legacy of this guy in advertising, this real person who may or may not have been as embattled as Don Draper, came up with, I'd like to buy the world of Coke and it's Miller time. Like, that's just, that's so, so interesting. I so loved this show, and I'm somebody who re-watches things. I don't know if that's like a symptom of my anxiety or or if it's a comfort thing, but I watch, you know, Parks and Recreation again and again and again because it's like a warm hug. And this show is not a warm hug, but for a drama that is funny sometimes, it appears to have rewatchability. And I've only seen any of it the once, except for the pilot I've seen a couple of times. Um, but I just, because the language of it is so beautiful and because the the immersion of it is so intoxicating in a way that is reminiscent of classic advertising, by the way, and not accidentally so. I can so see myself wanting to re-enter this and glean new messaging from the subtext because I think that it's very rich and I really look forward to learning more about it through second and third and fourth reviewings. The first time I ever saw the Mad Men pilot was when I was in radio school, and this was about 10 years ago. Um, I was in a computer media class, like a multimedia class, where one of the assignments to get us familiar with using uh, Final Cut or like Adobe Premiere or one of those uh, video softwares for our television uh, program was to take the raw files of the pilot episode of Mad Men and build a trailer from it. So like take this 45 minute uh, MP4 and strip it down and edit it in whichever way you like, be as creative as you want, and turn it into a 60-second TV spot that's advertising this new production, Mad Men. And 
so that that by the way is like still one of the coolest ideas anybody has ever had for uh, a homework assignment but like you don't have to like bear in mind the integrity of the actual program Mad Men, you can do whatever you want with it. And so there were people in my class who like made a trailer for Mad Men that made it look like it was a horror show or made it look like it was like a goofy romantic comedy or you could make something that was like really true to what Mad Men was or you could, I don't remember what everybody did, but like you could completely uh, voice your own voiceover for it that makes it sound like it's about something entirely different. Just like as long as you're creative and you prove that you know how to use this editing software you get an A, and I always thought that was a really cool idea. And I remember thinking, okay, this is a really good pilot, and then I came to know enough stuff about Mad Men that I thought I, I wasn't going to have a good experience watching the show. And <laughs> Becky and I watched Dawson's Creek there during the pandemic, and I just so enjoyed being able to watch, you know, 150 episodes of something that I was like, okay, let's do that. Let's do it again, uh, but with a show that's obviously tonally very different from... Uh, from Dawson's Creek and Becky had been trying to get me to watch Mad Men because she watched it and so I agreed let's put it on a couple of times and pretty quickly I was like I got that feeling where I'm like oh I'm gonna watch every episode of this like uh, I'm gonna watch every episode of this and I'm going to need this in my life um as a person who writes characters who makes people up um to create a Don Draper really feels like uh like a goal of mine now I've got like the Peggy Olson let's build something that lasts that's inspired by Don Draper because to build somebody who is so flawed and such a cowboy and so goddamn cool and so um uh well realized in the end that's that's quite an achievement and so hats off to the people behind uh because really well done and and, and John Hamm's performance was so good as a writer, I found there was something decidedly novelistic about this show. I remember hearing, I forget, I think it was, a, of all people, I think it was Penn Jillette who, who mentioned one time that in today's society, like it or not, purist or otherwise, the great American novel is, say, for example, Breaking Bad. It's not something written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's something written by, like, someone like Vince Gilligan or Matthew Weiner, because, um, it is a story of an American person going on a sort of spiritual, familial journey towards enlightenment and understanding within the context of something that is definitively American. In the case of uh, uh, Breaking Bad, the context is the deeply broken medical system and what it drives Americans to do. And in the case of Mad Men, it's the deeply broken corporate system of cynicism around advertising and media, and the race to make money, right? Like greed and 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 excess. And, and so both of those television programs very successfully achieve what I think was previously described to me more openly as what is essentially today's version of the great American novel. And I was very conscious through my entire Mad Men experience of how novelistic it was. And I'm watching this thing and thinking like, hey, if this is a really big fucking book, if this was a tome and it was 92 chapters and each one of these episodes is a chapter and it was on the shelf, even though people read books less, wouldn't it be considered the greatest book of its time? I think it would for that reason. And so they did it in this medium, which was all the more successful because it was so colorful and beautiful and the music cues were excellent and it made me want to uh, drink old fashions while I watched it. And so I'm not saying that it was the wrong uh, way to 
to present this story. It was the right one. But I am saying it is one of the great stories of its time. And having not had a lot of time to meditate on it since its finale, in my in my purview, um, in my rear view, uh, I do know that it is one of the great stories. And I can't wait to experience it again. Have I said enough about Mad Men? I did a longer podcast by myself just now than I did with uh, Slaney this week. <laughs> if you're still with me, hey, thank you for 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 staying with me. Uh, if you have any thoughts on Mad Men, uh, you know, we do have a show show Twitter, which we don't really plug very often uh, at show show podcast. We don't really use it that much. But like if if I've said something that's decidedly wrong in your perspective or if I left something out or if I've missed some kind of significant way to interpret the ending of this show, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, uh, a great experience. I don't know how to add uh, to wrap this up on my own. It seems silly to do. I never trust Will Smith without Slaney here and considering this podcast was so distinctly just about one thing <laughs> but if if Mad Men had cast will smith at any point i think it would have given me real pause in my ability to trust uh the rest of the show and so what i'll say is that for their choice not to ever at any point involve will smith in the production of Mad Men, uh i'll end this podcast by saying always trust Mad Men. uh coming up on the podcast we're gonna watch the new show with uh keegan michael key um and what is it? Uh, Cecily Strong. I almost said Kobe Smulders. Cecily Strong. Schmigadoon. Uh, Alan Cumming and uh, and Christian Channel with like all of these like musical uh, purists in a musical TV show about a couple of people who get stuck in an old timey musical. This is the new comedy of the week we're going to talk about. And of course, uh, very very soon is our 200th show show. So I don't even know what we have planned for that yet, but we're going to come up with something hopefully kind of cool. Thanks for taking the time. Always trust Mad Men and never trust Will Smith. <laughs>